0: Well, have you ever gotten something that was a newer version of something, and when you got it, you pervert the old thing over the new thing? Have you ever had that happen to you? Amen. Amen. You're like, no, we don't, yeah. A new gadget, a new tool, a new toy that promised ultimate satisfaction, you know, the catalogs have come out for Christmas, right, and it's just a matter of time before we buy all those toys, and then they sit in a closet after a week, right? Um. Yeah, a new season of life that you're so excited for, a new school year maybe. Sometimes the shine wears off pretty quick in this world where, as Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. It just kind of feels like it's a repeat of the same old, same old. And we can actually become very skeptical of something that is new and improved. Sometimes we wonder if it really can be improved. And the thing that you got, is it improved or do you prefer the old thing better? Um, for those of you that are in the Apple world, um, like myself, you know what that's all about. I kind of got sucked into the Apple world, not by choice, really by necessity, as I was doing a lot of video editing uh, at my former church. And uh, there had been times when I had updated to a new operating system, a new OS. And I was excited about it and it promised that um, you know, it'd be more streamlined or more operable and it'd be awesome, right? And when I updated to a new operating system, it made the former way of doing things actually more difficult and even sometimes inoperable. Um, as a worship pastor, I, one time I got a new computer, and um, lo and behold, that computer didn't have a disk drive, okay? I was like, well, super cool. It's faster, it's thinner, but it ended up making things a lot more convoluted and difficult and more expensive because for me to preview choir music that came out quarterly by publishing companies, I had to buy a separate disc drive in order to listen to music on a CD. And some of you are like, what's a CD, right? Because we've all been new and improved, right? Uh, But the truth is that sometimes the upgrade really isn't an upgrade, and we can become skeptical of that. But Mark opens up his book in a way that promises something new that is actually far superior to anything and everything that has come before. So open up to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to spend a little bit of time here today. And Mark opens up this book, and he's going to make a very bold, certifiable declaration that a whole new existence has come on the scene of the world. A whole new creation, if you will, was dawning right before his reader's eyes, And it doesn't just present a hope that maybe perhaps in a fingers crossed sort of way that with its arrival it might bring about a change for the better. That's not what he says here. Mark is actually going to begin this book and he's going to indicate to us that the world as we have known it is different. It's different now. And it has been forever altered and changed and upgraded because of what Mark is going to record for us. And so Mark begins his book with an echo of what we read in Genesis 1.1. There's a brand new edition of the world that is unfolding, and it's a much bigger deal than the new iPhone or the new Android or whatever device. And so just as Moses wrote poetically, That a whole new world was coming into existence in the beginning. Mark is writing down that there's a whole new dramatic, revolutionary way of living life on this planet. And so Moses says in Genesis 1:1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Mark says to us this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. And were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and believe in the gospel." May the Lord add his blessing to those who read, here, and seek to obey this word. Look at that final word in our passage today. It's actually the second word that we read in the Greek text. It's the word euangelion. And then the last word of this section is that word again, the euangelion. And everything in between those two words is the retelling of the dawning Of a whole new creation by means of a greater Exodus event. What we're gonna read about here in this passage of Scripture is not a reenactment of something that happened in the past. Mark is saying that everything that happened in the past happened in the past because it was a foreshadowing of the real deal that is unfolding right before our very eyes as he reads this to us. We notice this new creation when we see what John the Baptist is wearing and we hear what John the Baptist is preaching. We see it when we see Jesus going under the waters of the Jordan River and as he disappears under its flow, we see an identification, a death, and a judgment occurring that will forever change the surplus of our sins that we have committed. We see it when we see Jesus emerge from those waters. And then a dove descends on him because we are reminded of the flood waters that once subsided from Noah's boat, and a dove was sent out in search of evidence of new life sprouting out of the ground of the old cursed earth. That dove returned with an olive leaf in its beak. A whole new world had arrived, and Jesus coming out of those waters indicates that a whole new world had come about as he came up out of those waters. It unfolds as we hear a voice testify from heaven, expressing pleasure in the beloved Son, which is a reverberation of Psalm 2-7 that says, The Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. The dawning of the new creation by means of a greater exodus event is blatant, as we see Jesus immediately driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days, mind you, where he was tempted by Satan, but he didn't give himself into grumbling like the Israelites did. And then we see it as we imagine Jesus with the wild animals, kind of like Adam was with the animals in the garden in the perfect creation before the fall. It's blatant here. Mark is very careful with his word selection as he's going to craft this storytelling of Jesus. And Mark is going to say in this first section, Look. There is a whole new something that is taking place right before your eyes in these verses and he doesn't want you and I to miss it because it is euangelion. It's good news. A victory from a new creation has come about. Let's ask God to bless this time as we pour ourselves into this text. God, we are stunned by the beauty of these first 15 verses. It really is amazing when we put on these glasses, especially with Old Testament glass eyes, to see how Mark has constructed this narrative and how he begins it. God, I pray that we'd be stunned by the beauty we see here, that we'd be in awe of the new creation that is available to us that has come about because of the euangelion, the good news of Jesus' victory. And his arrival in this world. God, I pray that as we get into the weeds here for a little bit to break this passage apart and just look at one part of it today, that you would be kind to give us instruction on these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to get into the weeds a little bit here today. Um, And as I see it, the passage really breaks down into three main sections, and we're only going to cover one of them today. And many of these sermons have the potential to be kind of like a part one, part two type sermon. Um, Kind of the historical narratives of the Bible are sometimes challenging to not bleed over into one another. And honestly, I've never preached through a historical narrative before, so we all might be in for a slow, bumpy ride as we start these things out and I get acquainted with how to do this. All right? So we're going to be gracious with me, right? Good. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Today, we're only going to teach through one verse ah, right, and uh, there's 678 verses in Mark, so if you do the math, we'll be done in 13 years at this rate, and uh, Tony's not here today, where's Tony at, you are, yeah, I did this because you stayed for the Ephesian series, you said, I'll I'll, I'll wait through this Ephesian series and make a decision, I thought, if we can retain Tony over 13 years, that's perfect, right, that's what we'll do, all right, so we won't go that slow, But this verse actually serves as a title for the whole narrative. And it's important that we look at this very rich and yet verbalist introduction to the whole thing. It's really interesting. It's like Mark just grabs a pen and he starts rapidly writing down six nouns in a row. No need for verbs here. You know, let me just announce something about something. And so he says... The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So beginning, gospel, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And you can see from this opening just how fast-paced this gospel account is. He's going to hit the ground running. It's like when you watch some of those viral videos of those people trying to start on a treadmill like at max speed. Right? Let's see how if you can keep up. You know, let's see how fast your legs can go. It's like Marcus saying, verbs? Who needs verbs? I got nouns, man. Let me just tell you what it is. Let me declare things to you. So he says, beginning gospel, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And the passage breaks down with the opening title in verse 1. Next week, we'll look at verses 2 through 8 and 9 through 15. 2 through 8 is going to introduce us to the forerunner, John the Baptist. And then verses 9 through 15 will show us the runner himself, which is the protagonist of the story, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to get to those two sections next week, but this week, imagine with me, if you will, that verse 1 is just kind of like a pace car, taking all those that are involved in the race on a few warm-up laps before they wave the green flag. So 1-1 one, one is just kind of like, let me get your engines ready, let me get your tires warmed up, let's get acquainted with what we're getting ready to engage in for 16 chapters. And so he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. So let's look at this. The beginning of the gospel. These are very intentional words Mark uses right out of the gate. It's the term euangelion. I've said it multiple times already. That was a word that was used by the Romans to announce military victories over their enemies. So Alexander the Great had done a great job of going through and conquering more territories For the Roman Empire, he would conquer the enemies and accumulate lands for the Roman Empire. And then they would announce that euangelion. Good news, the kingdom has expanded. We got some news. There's there's more territory that is ours. And so Mark is going to use that term and say, Hey, there's a whole new battle that is getting ready to occur on the planet. And it's going to come to a dramatic end in about 16 chapters. I can't wait to tell you about it. But before I do that, I want to tell you about the beginning. And so Mark doesn't go the route of Matthew. We know Matthew. He traces the lineage of Jesus back through David and to Abraham. And then he talks about Mary and Joseph and the visit of the Magi to Herod. He talked about how those Magi followed a start of Bethlehem. Then he told us about the Holy Family's flight to Egypt and escape by the enraged king's decree to slaughter babies. Mark doesn't go that route. He doesn't go the route of the well-researched physician Luke who foretold the birth of both John the Baptist and Jesus. And then he records their actual births and the announcement to the shepherds of all people before he shares a genealogical stretch or sketch back to Adam. For Mark, he doesn't go that route. Mark Bethlehem wasn't the beginning, even Adam wasn't the beginning, the beginning was the beginning, and so he uses verbiage from Genesis. Just as Genesis told the story of creation, so Mark is going to suggest by this use of this word, arche, that the beginning of his story that he's about to talk about is centered around a whole new creation. And John actually does the same when you read his narrative. So I believe this is very intentional use of language right from the get-go. And he follows that up. He's like, hey, this is a whole new creation happening. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So on this lead lap, we need to unpack these terms. And I don't want to make any assumption that we're all just intuitively knowing what the original audience might have known about these words. We need to unpack these words today because we're going to see them throughout the rest of these 16 chapters. What do we mean by the beginning of the gospel of Jesus? Jesus. That name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is the name Joshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation. So that's important. (laughs) That's important. This is the beginning of the good news about Yahweh's salvation. The name Jesus was somewhat common in the first century, but every time it was said, it would undoubtedly drum up ideas in people's minds of the successor to Moses, who led the people of Israel into the promised land following their exodus from Egypt. So before they enter into the promised land, Joshua was Moses' key commander. Remember when everyone else said, look, I don't think that we can do this. It was Joshua and Caleb who said, we most certainly can. And so Moses led the people of God to the edge of the promised land, but it was actually Yeshua, Joshua, who was the one who fulfilled God's promise, his covenant promise, to establish the Israelites as the people of God in the promised land. And under his leadership, the nation had crossed the Jordan River and began the conquest of the land. You read about it in Joshua 3.7. Look at this. This is amazing. I praise look at this. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I, God, will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. That they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This is amazing. God Almighty said of Joshua, I will exalt you. God said that he would exalt, lift high Joshua in the sight of all Israel at the beginning of chapter 3 in the book that bears his name. And then Joshua leads them through the waters of the river Jordan, and they arrive unscathed in the promised land, and then we read this in the middle of chapter 4 of the book that bears his name. 4.14, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Yahweh exalted Yeshua in the sight of all of Israel to the extent that all of Israel stood in awe of Yeshua. Now for those of you that have been coming to equipping hour, do you want to take a verbal stab at what that word translated stood in awe means? Right? It's Yahweh. They feared. They're like astonished, reverencing. Oh my goodness, This is Yeshua, Joshua, exalted. They were arrested by, under the control of, their reverence for this Joshua. They were under the control of Yeshua. Joshua, by God, had been exalted. And now listen, we haven't even talked about the Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah's day. But if we did, we would notice that yes, that Yeshua of God, who interceded on behalf of God's people, needed intercession himself because he was clothed in filthy garments. Look at Zechariah 3.3. 3. It'll be on the screen. Now Joshua, who was functioning as the high priest when they're back in the land, was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. So this Joshua, this Joshua, this high priest, needed intervention himself. There needed to be a greater Joshua high priest to come. And so Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh functioning as a high priest. This is going to be the story, the good news story of how Yahweh would provide a greater salvation experience. Than the one that Joshua had brought about many centuries ago that left all of Israel in a state of reverential awe. This is a big deal. This is a big deal what Mark is getting ready to say. He says it's a story of how Yahweh would provide a better intercession than the one experienced by those later on in biblical history who had returned to the land after their time of exile because that high priest was himself clothed in filthy garments. He needed someone to stand in for him. So who's that going to be? And Mark opens up his gospel by saying, hey, there's a greater Joshua, and he's here. He's here. This is the beginning, a whole new creation that's coming on the world by means of a greater Joshua, Jesus, Yahweh's salvation. And he's not only Jesus, but he is the Christ. He's the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, (laughs) you know? The word Christ is a Greek title of the Hebrew word Messiah, which meant anointed one. Those anointed in the Old Testament were actually set aside from common use to fulfill a sacred purpose. It's like, this is very unique, very special. We're going to set you aside for a very specific, unique purpose. And in the Old Testament, people who acted as intermediaries between a holy God and sinful people, they were anointed and they were called priests. In the Old Testament, those who were supposed to govern and lead the nations, were anointed. They were called kings. In the Old Testament, those who spoke the words of God on behalf of God to the people of God were anointed. They were called prophets. So this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the special, unique one of God who would govern lead, and intercede on the people of God, and when he opened up his mouth to speak, he wouldn't be doing so on behalf of God, but as God himself. He was the word of God incarnate. So these opening words are so biblically rich, they're hard to wrap your minds around. It's stunning. And it only gets better from here. Because it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Whoa. Are you serious? Now, I want you to look in your Bibles. I want to point out something that most of our translations will have. There's a footnote attached to the phrase, and it will say something to the effect like, some manuscripts omit the phrase, Son of God. And you're like, uh uh-oh. So we have a discrepancy among the manuscripts. Some say son of God, some don't. Well, honestly, Mark, that's a pretty big detail to either have or not have. So what gives? Is Jesus Christ the son of God or is he not? And we actually don't have time to get into all the textual criticism of this, but we could all the arguments have been well-documented, and you can actually find them online on forums that actually contain pictures of the manuscripts themselves. You can actually look at it, and you can do a deep dive and study for yourself. And to be completely honest, there's strong arguments for its inclusion, and there's strong arguments for its omission. We're not clear exactly whether or not this originally flowed from Mark's pen in one one. And we're not going to talk about that today. And the reason why is because it's obviously blatantly clear throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus really was the Son of God. For instance, the demons announce it in 311. The Roman centurion of all people announces it in 1539. And plus, even later on in the very opening chapter, we hear the voice of God Almighty announcing Jesus' sonship in verse 11. So even if you do all the study and research, right, and you, you get all the manuscripts, you map them all out, and you arrive at some sort of conclusion that from manuscript evidence that Uiu Theu, Son of God, wasn't flowing out of Mark's pen here in verse 1, it does flow out all throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So we need to know the significance of this handle. What does that mean to be the son of God? What's the significance of being son of God? And we actually see this idea first in scripture in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel as a whole. Moses was God's spokesman to Pharaoh and the message bearer to Israel. He was told to go to Pharaoh with this message. Look at Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord... Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Just a side note, if God ever says do this or there will be deadly consequences, we should do what he says, right? Yeah. And we say yes, we say amen, of course, but do we? Adam didn't. Surely you will die. Don't eat of this or you will surely die. Crunch, death. And then the greatest chasm, creator, came into the world. Because they didn't take God at his word. They decided for themselves. So that's just a side note. If God ever says, Do this, or there will be deadly consequences. It's in our best interest to do what he says. And so here he says, Israel is my son. Israel is God's son here. And they're getting, Israel's getting ready to be led out of slavery. And next, the sonship of Israel is alluded to again in a very tender way at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Moses preaches his first of three sermons in the book. And he starts off by telling the Israelites on the cusp of the promised land. He says this. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. Just as he did for you in Egypt right before your very eyes. Like there's a battle and he's going to fight for you. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man. Carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. So, what a tender, compassionate, faith emboldening picture we get of God here. To a scared group of freed Israelites who had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of disobedience, Moses said, God goes before you, He will fight for you again, like He did historically in the past. And even while you disobeyed and you wandered in the wilderness, even then, God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. It's amazing. I love holding my boys. I love wrapping them in my arms. They're my boys. I want to surround them. I want to protect them. And I want to be affectionate with them. I want them to feel my strong embrace. I want to transfer love from me to them. I'm their dad. They're my boys, they're my sons. And they find warmth and security in my arms. And that's what God says He's like with His children. Even when we're wandering, even when we're disobedient, all the way I carried you. And Mark says that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the dearly beloved Son of God. Jesus was functioning as a stand-in substitute for the nation as a whole. And that's a really good thing because he was a stand-in he was a stand in because whoever would be the stunt double for humanity would bear the burden of being sacrificed because of love so enter into the famous verse right for god so loved the world that he gave his only son he's like the dirty rotten scoundrel sinners that have walked away and grumbled Let me give you my son. This gospel is about the son of God. In the Old Testament, the title son of God also referred to a coming king who would one day come from David's royal line. And speaking of this future coming king, God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so David is led to write, as we talked about this already, from Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what we see in this string of six nouns strung together tells us that everything written after this opening sentence will be about a new Joshua who would be the anointed one of God to be set apart for a very special, unique purpose of God for salvific purposes. This individual will not just be another run-of-the-mill type human. This will be the very son of God, which means that deity is dripping from these pages as we read. We're going to see who our God is in the flesh. Remember when Jesus says, you want to see the Father when you see me? I've seen the Father. We're going to see deity. We'll see him as he is. And as you can see from verse 1, this is a massive, massive, important narrative. (laughs) This is a narrative that you want to pay very, very close attention to. I was laughing to myself. Verse 1 is like the first few measures of Eye of the Tiger being played over the loudspeakers of our lives, right? Dan, 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 da, you know, dan, dan, da. like something big is getting ready to happen. Like it's like now, 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 now. Now here's it is. Get ready. The long-awaited, highly anticipated day is here. And what we need to hear from this message is that there's a whole new way To live your life, not a better way, but the best way to live your life has come about. It was formed from you. You couldn't bring it about yourself, but it has been brought to you in this gospel that you're going to hear. So listen this is no self help strategy. This isn't a self help strategy that just happens to work, right? This is no new and improved gadget. That will help you be more organized or on top of things in your life. This is the message that announces that we are utterly helpless and we need a whole new working of God to take that which was cursed and dead, be recreated, resulting in a whole new blessed life. And it's only exclusively found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Mark is going to say that, look... You can find a whole new identity in this gospel. This is good news of a victory that has overcome the world. And it's not just the story of Jesus. It can be our story as well if we find ourselves in him. And if we find ourselves not just fascinated by the story, but actually in it by means of our union with him, what is true of him is true of us. And if he has overcome the world that happens to have many tribulations in it, along with many dangerous toils and snares, then it only stands to reason that his victory will become our victory. To Jesus Christ be all the glory. So welcome to the Gospel of Mark. The lead lap is done. And come next week, we're going to go full throttle ahead into the narrative itself. God, we pray that um, as we get into this passage and this narrative God I pray that we'd just be amazed by what Mark is led to write in such a wonderful way we see a whole new creation by means of a greater exodus event that has dawned on the planet and we can be a part of it meaning that we can actually have a new life as well so God I pray that as we get into the story we'd recognize it not as a story but historical fact that this is true Jesus Christ come in the flesh it is very very good news And it announces a victory. It announces a victory that has come and will ultimately one day in the future come in all of its fullness. And so that reminds us of just the great song of our faith that we want to sing and offer to you now with great enthusiasm. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.